A few minutes ago, Sharda wanted to know if we should shut all the windows because the frogs were being so noisy. Would they be too much competition? Which reminded me of that little note that's been out there on the board about how they're cheering us on, which is a nice story. But you know what? That's not what they're doing. (laughs) They're saying, over here, over here. No, me, no me, choose me. Like that. Very different story. So at the beginning, we had some acronyms. And I thought you'd like to know the acronym for tonight's talk. It's Kavotata. (laughs) Kavotata is the knowledge and vision of things as they are. Kavotata. So it's not one that's going to be easy to remember since it's not a real word, but it was kind of fun as I worked on the talk. So you know, as the retreat goes on, every time I come into the hall, one of the nice things about being up here, of course, is that we can see you and we can peek every now and then. And what really seems to be true as I watch you all is that the layers are just peeling off. And each time I come in, it's not that you're looking fabulously younger, you know, it's not, not the spirit rock equivalent of the spa or a facelift or something like that. But it's just that you all seem more real and more present and somehow more fully just who you are. It's really quite, quite wonderful. And Sharda in her talk talked about the changing of the guard as mindfulness settled in. And so I think things are changing and it's very visible and it's very sweet. And it reminded me of Gill's poem about in the decrepit old hut, the moonlight shines through and seems like the the moonlight is maybe shining through. Maybe it's a manifestation even of that Zen koan that asks, what is your face before you were born? Maybe that's what we're seeing. So often when I think about practice, I think of of it using the metaphor of cultivating a garden. And probably a great number of us actually are gardeners and we know what that takes, you know, all of the preparation of the soil and the digging and the double digging and the rototilling and the right fertilizers and the endless weeding and getting just the right amount of suns and sun and shade and you put a plant in here and then two years later it says, no, I'd rather be over here and somehow it migrates the way plants do. And different plants have different requirements and some of them even seem to have their own ideas about how it is that they're going to grow. And so there are lots and lots of conditions for a good garden. And certainly not all of the conditions even are in our control. And so we've been talking these last couple of weeks about the conditions for awakening. You know, what is it 
What are the conditions? How do we create the garden so that awakening grows? And as with the garden, you know, it's, it's a little intuitive and sometimes we don't know exactly. And our job is just to do our best. That's your job out there, to do your best. Your job is really just to practice, really, and then see what happens. So we've been working with this list of conditions, of ingredients, if you will, the liberative or transformative or transcendent dependent arising. And it can be held as a linear kind of sequence, or it doesn't have to be. Sometimes different elements are more in the foreground or more in the background. And um, some of you have talked about feeling like, well, you're not, I'm not quite in the right place. I've heard that a couple of times. Those people are ahead of me or whatever. And, and some of you are feeling like whatever's, whatever place you're in, it isn't quite right or the balance isn't quite right. There's a lot of not quite rightness. And, and so it's also, you know, Gil mentioned last night, and we've mentioned it several times, that it's helpful to hold this particular list maybe as a spiral. And we go through many of the same conditions over and over again. And each time, you know, we, we wake up maybe a little bit more. So, so far we've had suffering and confidence, delight, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And tonight we have kavotata, knowledge and vision of things as they are. And so each time as we go around, you know, if we go all the way around, because there are several steps after this one, maybe there's a little bit more freedom. I've always loved Sylvia Borstein's idea of the third and one-half noble truth, which is, Maybe there isn't a complete ending of suffering, but there's at least a little bit less. You know. There's some freedom. So knowledge and vision of things as they are is the beginning of seeing. It's not the end of the path. It's not the end of the path. So if you wanted to, you could imagine hacking your way through a jungle. And as I was thinking about this, I was remembering a hike I took on the Big Island of Hawaii a couple of years ago, which is where I spend a lot of my time. And um, we were headed back in to see one of the active volcanic vents, and we were taking a back trail through the jungle. And we went up over roots and around trees, and there were huge cracks in the ground and big puddles. And, and you know, we felt like we fought our way through the jungle for several hours, actually, to get where we wanted to go. So you're, that's what you're doing. Probably feels about right, right? You know, hacking your way through the jungle. And what happens at this particular point is you come up on a little rise, and you look out, and you go, oh, look, your destination is really there. You begin to be able to see it, and you know you're on the right path. You see that you have to go back down and go through some more jungle before you get to, in this case, complete freedom. But you have some sense that it's really there. You've seen it. 
if that image doesn't work for you too well, we've had a number of images of baking bread using the Tassajara bread book. And, you know, so we also know that kind of working with conditions, that you have certain kinds of conditions that are helpful for the baking of bread and certain ingredients, you know. And most of us bread bakers in the crowd know that in the beginning you experiment and sometimes it doesn't work out so well, right? It's kind of flat looks like a pancake more than a loaf of bread, or it doesn't taste very good, or, or sometimes it's too soupy, or whatever. And getting the conditions just right for a good and nourishing loaf of bread, that's, that's also... Um, and you come to a point where you begin to see how it really is. So we've been working these last days with really often it feels like cleaning the lenses of your perception so that we can begin to see more clearly the truth of this human experience, whatever it is. And it's a, it's a very gradual kind of cleansing of that perception. I remembered that one of the early books about Vipassana practice in the West was Stephen Levine's book that he called A Gradual Awakening, you know, that it, it happens very gradually. So that we can see what is. One of my favorite Dharma poems is a poem from Galway Canal, and he says, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So, when I was a young child, probably like all of us, I drew pictures of my world. And in those pictures, you know, you had the green earth and trees, and usually me, and sometimes my mom and my dad and my dog. And the sun was kind of a yellow disc up there in a blue sky and had rays going out. We all know those pictures, and now your children, and for some of us our grandchildren are, are drawing them. And once in a while there'd be a night picture, you know, so then you'd have the moon and the stars in the sky instead of the sun. And there's always that sense, you know, that there was just this dome up there. And that's where they were. And the dome was sort of over us. And the sun and the moon went around and around quite regularly, seeming to orbit my world. And it was pretty simple. It was pretty simple. And, you know, I'm sure other people knew better than that. But as far as I was concerned, in my mind, those were the elements of of my world and nothing more. And I was a really big part of that world, often kind of right in the middle of the picture, you know, pretty small universe. And now, of course, um, we know that that's not an accurate picture. And that, as I've mentioned before, because astronomy is my old age love, uh, we know that the universe is billions of years vast and light years and trillions of miles. And we are all inhabiting an infinitesimal planet 
and an outer arm of a relatively insignificant galaxy, you know. Well, not, not even probably the best neighborhood. And it's really <laughs> impossible to imagine, really. And, you know, I came across a quote the other night when I was reading about being able to look out um, through a relatively small telescope and you could see two or three galaxies and by sitting there and watching them you were basking in the light of trillions of stars. Imagine being able in your telescope to see trillions of stars all at once. So, you know, I'm a little tiny element in a very, very big universe. Quite the reverse of my childhood picture. And I'm a participant in the unrolling of time and space. And, you know, I'm not anything special, and neither are you, you know. It's just happening. So, in our practice, beginning to have knowledge and vision of things as they are is similar to this opening up. It's a way in which our views begin to change and to relax and to open. And we begin to see that the picture is very different from what we thought at the beginning of our practice, anyway. And this vision, the seeing, begins to arise at that point when the conditions are right, when you have just enough confidence, you know, after you've suffered enough to start practicing, then there's just enough confidence and enough relaxation into the practice, all the delight and joy and tranquility and happiness, and enough concentration so that you're seeing clearly. And then we have a different view. So then we begin to see much more clearly about the nature and the origin of our suffering. And we begin to see how everything is constantly changing, coming in and out of being so fast, in fact, we can't even track it. This notion of now actually gets even really interesting. If you can find it, you know, as soon as you find now, it's then, right? <laughs> Amazing. You know, where's, where's tea? We just had tea or supper or whatever it's called these days. You know, supper is back there with the dinosaurs already. It's amazing. So gone. And we begin to see how the self of anything can't be found. Nothing permanent, nothing substantial. So there's lots of things that block these seeings, that keep us from seeing so clearly. And one of them that's really important, and it really helps to begin to look at it, is what's called personality view, sakyaditi in the Pali. So each of you, you know who you are, I think, I hope still, And you could probably, if we could talk, you could tell us a lot about your style and your way of being in the world and 
your habits and your history and you could say some things about your body, what it looks like and, and what it can do and what its problems are. And, and you know all of that really, really well. Who's that? You know, we say to a child, you know, who's that? Who's that? And the child says, John! And laughs and laughs, you know, or Donald or Tisha or... And, and we're actually being taught, aren't we, to identify. It's useful. It is useful in time and space. We're being taught to identify with the body and with this event that's happening that calls, calls, it, calls itself a human being. You know? And like I said, children, my grandchildren thought that was hysterically funny when we would do that um, as a game. And so we acquire, over some time, this personality, preferably one that meshes quite nicely with the personalities of your parents and your teachers and your culture. So there's definitely some things that are encouraged in creating your personality. That's what, of course, supports the therapist for years later on. (laughs) So... And it is useful in relative truth and time and space, knowing your zip code, very good idea. Taking the right pair of shoes when you leave the hall at the end of the sitting, we all appreciate that when you do that. And we appreciate it that you all know which dorm room is yours. You know, that's really good information, that kind of time and space. But partly, I suppose, what takes us to those therapists in the end. But we know that the personality also has its drawbacks, right? And so, in amongst all of the things that we might be talking about, if we were talking about our personalities, would be things about, you know, the neuroses that we have and the really bad habits and the ways that our personality manifests that not so you know not so pleasant the places where we're grumpy or judgmental or forgetful or critical or whatever it is that we all are and i don't know about you but i get pretty exasperated with my personality sometimes you know and it's sort of like oh there she is again you know mary grace doing her thing one more time Whatever it is, you know, that place where we got caught in cycling around and around and around. And sometimes, of course, in practice, and I I would say I've been hearing some of this in interviews, the personality also contributes to our feeling that I can't do it. You know, I I can't live up to those high ideals, you know, some of these... This concentration stuff, it sounds just impossible. It's so scary. I'm, I'm just not a good enough practitioner. I'm never going to get the A-plus in the two-month retreat course. You know, I'm not ever going to get enlightened. It's just not for me. So as we sit, because what else have you had to sit with for these last two months but this lovely personality of yours? Um, and we begin to see, oh, you know, this, this personality, it, it certainly has limitations 
And it certainly doesn't seem like this is any refuge. This is not going to be helpful. And and it doesn't seem like the actually it doesn't seem like the personality is what's going to wake up. And it's not actually the personality that wakes up. So the Dharma, the Dharma is about the way things are. The way things are, just as they are. And you know, in that wonderful poem that Gil brought last night, you know, it didn't talk about the moonlight shining through the beautiful resort on the coast of the Caribbean. It talked about the moonlight shining through the decrepit old hut. You know, so um, so the, it's the personality is something maybe to look at very, very closely and maybe to let go of. So when we look closely, we begin to see that it's made up of several components that we connect, a bit like a connect-the-dots game that you played perhaps when you were a child. And the Buddha describes these dots, if you will, he called them the five aggregates or the five khandhas, um, and or the, sometimes that's translated as heaps or baskets. These five nodes, if you will, around which the personality um, forms. And so these are form or the body, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And these are sometimes called the five aggregates of clinging because these are the place that we grab onto and we say, ah, that's me. So I wanted to read you. This is from um, a piece by Matt Flickstein. And he says, um, after the student has developed a strong foundation of mindfulness and concentration, the attention can now be turned to systematically investigating the personality or individuality. And he goes on to say that you investigate each one of these to see that all material form belongs to the form aggregate, the body aggregate, the materiality aggregate. All of the feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, belongs to the feeling. All perceptions to the perception, all volitions or mental formations belong to that at group, and all the states of mind. And you begin to break your experience down just by looking very, very carefully at it. You know, what is it, which aggregate does this belong to? So let me say a little bit about each one of them. So the first is materiality, and of course that's for us the body, the stuff that we inhabit. Um, There's practices of really deep mindfulness of the body. Um, Sometimes I teach here, even a retreat with my friend Bob Stahl, on the 32 parts of the body, you know, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and it kind of goes on from there. So it's the, it's the aggregate of form. And it's an aggregate that we get very, very identified with. You know, this body, 
that's me. And often very anxious and very threatened when, um, when we are faced with its woundedness or its fragility. And it is extraordinarily fragile. Extraordinarily fragile, you know. We are here for really a very, very short time. And like that glass that Sharda mentioned, Ajahn Chah's glass, we are already broken, you know. We are already, in a sense, gone. Um, And as we really explore that foundation of that aggregate of the body, which is, of course, the first of the foundations of mindfulness, um, we, we really become aware both of, of its fragility and of its many, many parts. The second of the aggregates is that of feeling, Vedana. So that's that um, aspect that we talked about a lot the other day of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and that flavor of all of our experiences, which is also the second of the foundations of mindfulness. You begin to see, I think at this point, how these lists overlap a lot. Um, and so things that show up on one list also show up on another. And it's, it's that place that's so important because it's also the link in the chain of dependent origination, the chain that has to do with suffering, which is the place that is where craving and clinging can arise. So it's really important to catch up. And the aggregate of perception, which is the, the place where we recognize our experience. It's the ability to know that we are seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or thinking. It's a very useful ability, actually, in our world to be able to know that. And the mental formations, sometimes called karmic formations, are the stories that, that arise and they wrap around our experiences and they create intentions and more actions and often perpetuate cycles of suffering. And then the consciousness is the basic awareness of the mind that makes all experience possible. So none of these is self none of them. It's a loose assemblage and when it's all together we identify, we cling, and these are the aggregates of clinging, we identify with some or all of it and we say, that's me, that's me. The Buddha used these to describe what it is that a person is and he said that to define yourself in any way whatsoever is to create suffering. And we create selves from these aggregates. They are a convention. So here's a couple of other examples. One of my favorites is the Big Dipper. And it's right up there these nights in the sky. You can go see it. And we look up. We all do, right? And you say, oh, yay, the Big Dipper. I know that one. Lots of people know hardly any other constellations, but we know that one ever since we were children. But you know, if you got in your trusty little spaceship and went up there, is there a Big Dipper? No, they're not even on a plane. Some of them are light years away from each other. 
You know, it's a range of about 50 light years up there. I just checked today to find out. Actually, I can't resist giving you my current favorite little tidbit. On your 75th birthday, if you go out and look at the Big Dipper, the light that you are seeing that night will have originated the day you were born. It's just about 75 light years. So those of you who are getting close to 75, save it. If you're a little past that, you can think back to when you were three or eight or whatever. So it's a convention. We say it's the Big Dipper. We look at a map of the world, right? What's on top? North America, the Arctic, Canada, all of those things. Down there at the bottom, way down at the bottom, you know, Australia, New Zealand, the South Pole. I walked into a museum one day, and lo and behold, there was a map, and it had New Zealand and Australia on top. The whole thing was upside down. But you know, who says it's upside down? Why is it upside down? We're so used to a map that has us on top and them on the bottom, right? There's nothing that says it can't be the other way around. It's just a convention that we've gotten very, very used to. And it forms our way of thinking and it forms how it is that we deal with our world. And it's made me wonder a lot about the implications of always having a map with Europe and North America on top. Very interesting. Very interesting. And then the last thing, because it just happened last week, I was sitting this retreat a few years ago, and the time change happened the way it did last weekend. And I went out after breakfast, as I always did, for my walk. And I had a place where I would, that wonderful tree that's up on the ridge, and I would go up there, and often there was a little hummingbird who would sit there. And then at some point, he'd warm up enough and he'd dive off. It was really wonderful. And I went up there the morning after the time change, and he wasn't there yet. And then I thought, oh, the birds don't know that the time has changed. (laughs) And then I thought, the birds don't know anything about time, you know? They don't know anything about time. They don't have time the way we do. It's a convention. You know, my, my husband likes to say it's God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. I don't know. So when we say, I am a person who, that's a good phrase because we all use it, I'm a person who does this or likes that or doesn't like that, that's a way that we buy into that convention and we create self about it. Every day, the monks chant, this, and I'm going to just read you the English, not the Pali. The monks up at at Abhayagiri do it in both. The five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. These are as follows. Identification with the body, identification with feeling, identification with perception, identification with mental formations, identification with consciousness. For the complete understanding of this, the Blessed One in his lifetime frequently instructed his disciples in just this way. In addition, he further instructed 
the body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, mental formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, the body is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, mental formations are not self, Consciousness is not self. All conditions are impermanent. There is no self in the created or the uncreated. It is relentless to chant that. It is relentless. So this assemblage, these five aggregates, very ephemeral, very impermanent. And, you know, we all know how quickly it could change. Some of us have had the experience of, you know, the difficult diagnosis or the one that's potentially difficult. And we know how our world can take a right angle, maybe even overnight, and everything changes. And there's the potential of doctors and hospitals and chemo and surgeries and maybe even death relatively soon. And It's as though the floor drops out from under us when that happens. We are very attached to the sense of self. And we don't like the notion that we are going to age and sicken and die. And we resist chants like the one I just read you and practices. And that's probably why we have them, you know, we have formal practices because we're not very good at doing these things just naturally. It's really hard to look at the impermanence of this event. We've been dealing with a huge rift in my family because we have an elderly member of it who will not deal with the fact that she's 85 and might die in the not-too-distant future. She took a lot of offense when some of the rest of us took it seriously. So... You know, it's very, very hard to look at that sometimes. How can we look at our own impermanence, the ephemeral nature of this, this very transient thing that is the human being and the personality? How can we do that with some balance and keep our hearts open? So this personality, you know, this coming together of habits and influences and form and perception, it's a habit, it's deeply ingrained in our being. It's yours for the duration, doesn't seem to change a whole lot. And I can remember Jack Cornfield saying in some of my early retreats, you know, you've got it for the trip, and if you get enlightened, then you're going to be weird and enlightened. So, but at least you won't be identified with it. And then I'd like to think a little bit about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who of course was raised, as some of you know, that his understanding, or the understanding of many of the people around him, is that he's the Bodhisattva of compassion. But the wonderful thing about the Dalai Lama is that he doesn't identify with being the Bodhisattva of compassion. He prefers to say, oh, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. And what I think is true about him is he takes it seriously as a job description. So he's a simple Buddhist monk who works hard at being the bodhisattva of compassion, but it's not his personality. And he'd probably be a very different person 
if he were completely identified with such a thing. So, in another of the monastic recollections that happens fairly regularly, there's something called the Five Subjects for Frequent Recollection. And in this teaching, we reflect on aging, I'm of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging, I'm of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then it says, the only thing, really what it says is the only thing we have is our karma. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma, whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So that's the one thing to pay attention to. We do have our karma. That's what stays. The reverberation of our lives stays. It goes on. So it's really important not to let this personality just run wild, right? If it didn't matter, we wouldn't keep precepts and live our lives carefully, and and you probably wouldn't even be here at the retreat, you know? And so we take being here really seriously and we work really hard to have wise and kind and skillful lives so that the reverberation remains. And every one of us could tell probably a fabulous story about someone you knew and loved who's gone now, but still, you know, it's like this. And you can hear that reverberation going on. And I often think about the Buddha. You know, the Buddha was here 2,500 years ago. In 2,500 years, I am sure no one will be talking about Mary Grace Orr. So that reverberation is pretty amazing, that someone lived and taught in such a way that we are gathered here together having this conversation this evening. You know, that is a very powerful karmic reverberation. So what would it be to understand that this, to understand this view of a person, that it's only a convention, that this personality idea, that it's based on a, contem- a sort of a temporary coalition of aggregates. And I thought again of Sharda's story, which I just loved the other night about the farmer, you know? And, and he could say, I ain't lost. And he knew there was a lot he didn't know, but he also knew exactly where he was. And that was enough. That was enough. So one of my favorite Buddhist stories is actually a Zen story, and it's about the Emperor Wu. And the Emperor Wu lived around the 13th century, and he was, like all of us, a spiritual seeker. He really wanted to learn how to practice. But when, in those days anyway, when you were the emperor of China, it was pretty hard to get teachings that weren't from someone who wasn't trying to also get into your favor. And so he never could quite get someone who would really give him some good, strong teachings. And one day he encountered this wild, barbarian man in his court. 
And um, he thought, well, I'll ask him a couple of questions. And he said, well, tell me about the building of monasteries. You know, what merit is there in that? And he said, this wild man said, no merit. They don't say that to an emperor who's probably built a lot of monasteries, you know. No, nothing, no merit. And then he said, well, what about all these teachings, all these books of spiritual teachings? And this wild guy said, nothing special, vast emptiness. And at that point, the emperor thought, this is very interesting. So he looked at this man, who was the great Zen sage, Bodhidharma, but the emperor Wu didn't know it. And he said, who are you? standing there. And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. (laughs) I don't know. And the emperor was so blown away that he couldn't think for a minute. And when he came to, Bodhidharma was gone and he never saw him again. But his life utterly changed. You know, he didn't know. Bodhidharma didn't know. But he wasn't lost either. Interesting, huh? To not know and not be lost. So we are asked to take this concentration that we've been developing and go right into your experience, right into the heart of your breath, of your body, of the chorus of the frogs, of your sadness. What's there? What is this experience that you're having? And to see as clearly as you can, what's there. I always thought when I started practicing that somewhere along the line I was going to get the special secret teachings, you know? And actually in those days, sometimes at retreats, Jack would have little gatherings of the old students and I would sneak in thinking that maybe I would hear, you know, the special secret teachings. But, you know, they weren't special secret teachings. They were the same instructions, maybe a little more detailed, a few questions about them, but the same teachings. There aren't any special teachings. We just see more and more and more clearly. See impermanence more clearly. I'm seeing it at a level I never saw before. Something we hear a lot, actually. We see the nature of our suffering more clearly and how attachment and clinging creates it. And we see how there's no permanent, substantial self. And in order to do this, we need to keep chipping away at those old views of stepping out of the personality view, of really practicing disassembling it a little bit and seeing, oh, it's not, it's not a solid thing. Because when we make the personality our refuge, it's not. It's a prison. So we know that the sun isn't pasted in the sky and neither is the moon or the stars. And we know that we are little tiny specks in a really, really big universe. And it's very, very apparent just from the the knowledge that we have from physics and cosmology that we're involved in a process that's much larger than our individual lives. And then when we add the intuitive awareness of our practice, it becomes really, really clear that that this process, this process that we're part of is very, very big. 
one of the visions says that it's a vision of independence so radical that no interdependence so radical that no factor or no element can be understood in isolation. It's all incredibly interconnected. So perhaps one of the best solutions, certainly one that works pretty well for me, is to not know. Is to just not know. Because not knowing and then being really curious is much safer than assuming we know. We know what happens when people assume that they know something. That creates a lot of rigidity and closeness. And when we don't know, know, we're open to so much more. Suzuki Roshi said, um, in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities, and in the mind of the expert, there are few. So Ajahn Sumedho says this. It's great. Maybe if you carry nothing else out of this talk, this would be the thing to take. He says, waking up is just a simple imminent act of attention, open, relaxed, listening, being here and now. So in this act of attention, we are deeply present with the requisite conditions for focus and concentration. And when we are deeply present in that way, then we begin to see the flow and process of being and we see the change, we see that there's nothing solid or permanent. And we begin to understand that any trying to fix up the personality so that it will be a refuge is hopeless. It's refuge in the very, very small. And refuge in a wider view, refuge in not knowing, refuge in impermanence and not-self and a deep understanding of suffering, is refuge in the big. It's refuge in that which is much bigger and comes when we're able to recognize the process of creating a personality rather than solidifying it and getting lost in its, hap- in its habits. So the question maybe for each of us is how are you being with what is happening in this moment? You know, can we meet each moment with calm and happiness and focus, accepting it just as it is, not needing to know exactly, not to figure it out, really filled with curiosity and wonderment. So Ajahn Chah described it like this. He says, when when the conditions are that way, when we have the right conditions, the calm, the focus, the happiness. He says, your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's just sit and breathe for a moment together.
your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So thank you very much for listening.